Father in heaven, we thank you for this space. We recognize that you are everywhere at all times in every moment of our lives, but this is a sacred space where we quiet our hearts, we quell distractions, we want to hear from you, Lord. Father, even right now specifically, I want to pray for the Pollards as they just this morning went into labor. I pray even right now as we are gathered, your Holy Spirit would be ministering to them and keeping them safe, both mother and child. We thank you for the new life there. And Father, as you have a word for us this morning, I pray that it would come in power, that the reality that you have sovereign strength that keeps us would, would comfort us. The reality that one day you will present us blameless in perfection would astound us. Your grace would amaze us. So come now, Lord. Your servants want to hear from you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, today we reach the final two verses in the book of Jude. For some of you, that might come as a great relief. In truth, Jude is a heavy letter filled with granite words. If Jude lived today, he probably would not be a very popular guy because his primary concern isn't being culturally relevant or being progressive or any other modern monikers you have for enlightenment. He probably wouldn't have cared how many likes he has on his Facebook posts. Probably wouldn't have checked how many spins he has on his podcast. That's just not how Jude rolls. He is dead serious about the truth and knows that life is serious business because eternity hangs in the balance. See, Jude was the blood brother of Jesus Christ, the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And so the words of his brother are echoing in his ears, and though he didn't even believe in his brother as the Messiah during his ministry, after he rose bodily from the dead, that changed everything for Jude, and a fire was ignited in his bosom, and he knew he had been called to hail a message of warning about the great day of judgment. If you remember the verse right before our text today, Jude says this, have mercy on those who doubt, save others by snatching them out of the fire. Jude is a serious guy. I know some of you, like me, are fans of Lord of the Rings, and I kind of envision Jude like if the Fellowship of the Ring were the apostles, Jude would be Gimli, the dwarf. <laughs> See, I'm kind of a, fa- I'm kind of a Photoshop like, expert. I can teach you how to do that later. It's pretty impressive, obviously. He'd be Gimli. He's super fiery and tenacious, but he's also fiercely loyal and really does love deeply, and like Gimli, you're profoundly thankful that he's on your side. Even though he doesn't have the smoothest of edges, he's real, he's for you, he's going to tell you how it is. And there's this one scene in The Lord of the Rings which I think exemplifies the spirit of Jude so wonderfully. So Gimli and his band of merry folk were looking for two specific friends, Merry and Pippin. And if you remember the scene, they find them uh, with the elves just hanging out and having a good time. And Gimli says this to them. He says, a fine hunt you have led us on, 200 leagues through fen and forest, battle and death to rescue you. And here we find you feasting and idling. Hammer and tongs, I am so torn between rage and joy. 
that if I do not burst, it will be a marvel. (laughs) That's kind of Jude. He's been raging a lot. He realizes his friends are in harm's way with a culture around them that is seeking to denounce the truth of the gospel, the truth that there is a coming judgment, but God has provided a Savior in Jesus Christ. And so they can't just be feasting and idling, and they must contend for the faith. Yet, as we come to these sweet final verses in his letter today, we get the joy side. We get a deeper glimpse into what animates Jude, and it is a glorious vision of not just who God is, but who God is for us. Jude ends his letter in doxology. If you open up to the book of Jude and go to our text today, you'll see the word doxology written above it. That wasn't actually in the original, but it's meant to tell us what this section's about. And that's not a word that we're probably super familiar with. It's actually comprised of two Greek words, namely doxa, which means glory or praise, and logos, which means word or to speak. So literally, doxology simply means to give praise. So after hammering out this weighty letter, he ends by lifting his gaze ahead to the horizon and peering afresh at who God is for us. And in so doing, Jude is teaching us something profound, and it's this. Theology, the truth about God, should always overflow into doxology, praise to God. See, Jude's heart and mind are interwoven together. He's not just passionate about Christianity because he likes to win arguments or because he likes to talk theology. He is passionate about it because it reveals the glory of God in the salvation for men and women. Jude's heart and his mind are profoundly interwoven. And so his theology now erupts at the end into doxology, praise to God. If you're like me, intellectualizing the faith can be a particular temptation, especially if uh, you really actually enjoy reading philosophy and theology and apologetics and these types of things. Now, of course, these aren't bad things to pursue. I have a master's in apologetics, and one of the calls on us is to love the Lord with our mind. It's good to do this, but we must always remember that God is not a subject to be studied. He's a person to be praised, and the enemy is totally fine with us putting all of our fancy theological phrases to work as long as it's disconnected from our hearts. We come puffed up with all the knowledge we have about God, totally disconnected from the truth of God. C.S. Lewis, in his wonderful book, The Great Divorce, gives voice to the dangers of theology that doesn't result in doxology. He says, there have been men before who got so interested in proving the existence of God, that they came to care nothing for God himself, as if the good Lord had nothing to do but exist. Well, the Lord does have more to do than exist. He is the sovereign creator of the universe who upholds our lives and hand delivers each new breath. This is why Jude ends in doxology, because he had a fresh glimpse of the reality of not only who God is, but who God is for you And for me, the genius mathematician Blaise Pascal, when he was 31 years old, had a profound experience where his abstract theology turned into deep doxology. And according to the records we have, we we have no record of him actually 
telling of this experience that happened on the night of November 23rd, 1654. But after he died, when they looked inside of his coat, they found a piece of parchment stitched in where it would lay on his heart. And on that piece of parchment was a cross. And then I had these words. From about half past ten at night to about half an hour after midnight, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of philosophers and scholars. Certitude, heartfelt joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God. Joy, 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 tears of joy. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, may I never be separated from him. This was Pascal's experience, and he didn't want to loosen his grasp on it because he knows our tendency to fall away of the truth of God, and so he literally stitched it in his jacket. Every day of his life, he held this experience on his heart. And that's where we find ourselves now at the end of Jude. So with that, won't you open your Bibles to Jude 24 and 25, and we'll work our way through each verse in turn. Verse 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Here Jude gives us two specific reasons for, in light of what he's written in his letter, why that should result in doxology to God. The first one is this, we praise God for his sovereign strength that keeps us. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Herein lies one of the greatest comforts for the Christian, and it is this. God is the one who ultimately keeps you in the faith so that you will never stumble. You will never fall away. If you have put your faith in Christ, you will persevere to the end because God is able to to keep you, and he will keep you. This has been a theme for Jude, one that literally bookends the book. The very first verse, remember what Jude said, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. This is identity language. Jude is saying up front, this is who you are. You are beloved by God, and you are kept for Jesus Christ. And now it's no accident that at the very end, he says, now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling. Oh, what an encouragement to know that God himself is the one who keeps us, that he is the one who sustains us, that he who began the good work in you will be faithful to bring it about to completion. This is not an insignificant part of our faith, but one that impacts every nuance of our reality. It not only impacts how we view our salvation, namely as a sovereign work of God, but it provides comfort in every second of our lives. Can you imagine if God said, all right, I've done my part here. I've saved you totally on the basis of the merits of Christ alone, and now you better not screw this up for the rest of your life, because if you do, you're done. Who could live like that? Knowing my frailty as a fallible, sinful man, I would live in a state of constant anxiety if my perseverance ultimately depended on myself. If at any moment a season of doubt or sin or depression could untether me from Christ, who could live like that? 
And Jude wants to disabuse us of that, not to him who is able to keep you. Jude didn't just make this up, though, but is echoing his big brother, Jesus Christ, who said in John 6, catch this. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day, and I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Friend, God wants you to rest secure in his sovereign strength that keeps you. In fact, he wants you to so much that in Scripture, we get a triune vision of security. Every member of the Trinity is part of this endeavor to keep you. Our text today says the Father keeps you. John says that Jesus holds you. And Ephesians says that when you believed in Christ, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That is good news. Not to overstate the point, but I know that there are those of us who struggle with thoughts of losing our salvation. And I want you to experience the full measure of peace and security that God is speaking to you today through his word. Now, I know it can be tough to wrestle with. How does this work? God's sovereignty to hold us, but our, our practical volition in making choices in our day-to-day life. Well, I wanted to maybe offer a picture that might help bring some clarity. I um, remember when I was a a boy walking in the hills of Pennsylvania with my grandpa. It's amazing when you're a child how your grandpa just seems like this massive tower of a man and so strong. And imagine that we're walking in a treacherous spot, and so he takes his strong hand and he grasps my small little boy hand. Now imagine my feet start to slip, and out of reaction, I latch on to him. Now who is the one who is keeping me from stumbling? I might think it's because I grabbed him, but we all know I'm not the one who's holding myself. It's my grandpa's strong hand who is latched onto my quivering hand who will decisively keep me from stumbling. And this, I think, is a small glimpse into what God's strength looks like over us. We might think we are holding on for dear life at certain times, but what keeps us is the fact that God is the one who is holding us. He is able to keep you, friend. The psalmist gives us a beautiful picture of this in Psalm 121. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. What a glorious vision of the God who is able to keep I'm currently reading a, a biography on Stonewall Jackson. I'm just, uh, I love the Civil War. I've always been fascinated. Maybe it's because I was born about 45 minutes from Gettysburg, but I've always just been so interested. And uh, he was known, Jackson was known for being unbelievably, bizarrely calm and stalwart Why, as, while, as the book says, hell was raining down around him. And it was in the first major battle of the Civil War that he actually got his nickname. There was another general named uh, Bernard B., and Confederate soldiers were starting to retreat, and so General B was trying to inspire his men to stay true. And he looked up and he saw Jackson with his brigade just unflinching in the midst of this crazy fire. And so General B pointed and says, there stands Jackson like a stone wall. Rally behind them. And what was the most interesting thing to me is what Jackson said kept him 
in that calm state during the war. Just three days after this, a captain asked him how he was able to stay so composed, and uh, Stonewall Jackson said this, My religious beliefs teach me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. God has fixed the time of my death. I do not concern myself with that, but to be always ready whenever it may overtake me. This is the way all men should live, and all men would be equally brave. He was so utterly convinced of God's sovereignty over his life that held him for every second that he was able to live with a sense of deep and abiding peace in what is almost impossible to imagine, stress. So this is not theoretical for us, friends. God means for this to bear on our lives. Many of you are our new babies or new parents for the first time, not new babies. Well, some of you might be new babies, but uh, after the Bucks lose, I'm a new baby, but that's neither here nor there. You're, uh, you're new parents. That's anxiety-inducing, I would imagine, that you are responsible for this new life. What is going to be the deepest comfort you find? Well, it's the reality that God keeps you. God keeps that child. He is sovereign over this, and yes, he has called you to help them grow, but he is the one who establishes every step of every human's life. Maybe you're in the middle of a dark valley of depression or anxiety. What is going to keep you in this place when every consolation of God's felt presence is gone? It's knowing that God has not left you, and he will keep you. He will keep you from stumbling. That's the reason the psalmist wrote that with such pathos, not because he felt happy in God, it's because he needed to be reminded that God keeps him through the valley. Even as I had a birthday this week, which for me brings into sharp focus the absence of some things I thought I might have at this point in my life, I found myself praying this as I'm trying to write this sermon on my birthday. This is not theory for us, friends. God wants us to be encouraged. He is keeping us. He is sovereign, and he is good, and he knows what he's doing. So firstly, we praise God for his sovereign strength that keeps us. The next reason Jude gives us for doxology here at the end of his letter is this. We praise God because he will present us in perfection. Verse 24 again. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and here it is, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Sometimes on weeks that I preach, I I will have this reoccurring dream that I step up to this pulpit and I'm ready to go and I have not prepared anything. It is the most horrifying experience. My subconscious is so cruel to me. And and where does this come from? It's going to look different in your life, but this is where it does come from. We all have the same fear of being utterly exposed as frauds utterly exposed as phonies, every one of us. If light was cast on our entire lives, that would be terrifying to us. If your entire Google search history was broadcast on Facebook, if every relational detail of your life was brought into the daylight, if every dark thought you ever had, everybody knew, we would be terrified. One of my professors said something very insightful this semester that's really uh, had a profound impact on me, and it speaks into this very situation we find ourselves. He said, everyone 
at the bottom has the same fear. If we were to be fully known, we would be unlovable. Everyone at the bottom has the same fear. If we were to be fully known, we would be unlovable. And this is why the Facebook culture is so appealing to us. We are the curator of our lives. We play only our highlight reel. We let people know only what we want them to see. And it's usually smiling and usually amazing, and it's not reality. The truth is, typically, the more virtual friends we are, the more lonely we are. Because we were not uh, created to live plastic, curated lives. We were created to live in true community, being known, being delighted in to the core of our existence. So we took to hiding. But this is exactly the reason Jude exalts in who God is for us and what God has done for us. He says that God will ultimately present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. God himself will present us fully exposed in the light of glory, and it will result not in cowering from us, but in great joy being presented as trophies of God's grace. We will dwell with him and bask in the lights, and there will be no more corners to try to cower in. It will be great joy. And friends, this is only possible through Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. God will not be able to present us because we give him our resume of all the good deeds we did like little good boys and girls this week, but because of the merits of Jesus Christ alone. Jesus Christ, who God took on flesh and lived a perfect life, died on the cross and there bore the full wrath that our sin deserves and rose again three days later, conquering the fear and the grip and the teeth that sin has on our souls. He conquered it, and he gave us all of his righteousness. Let that fall on you. When you are presented in glory, you will be totally perfect. You will be blameless. This frees us. We often talk about the freedom of the gospel. This is what we're talking about. When you realize this, you are free to say whether it's sin from your past or struggles that you are currently having, it's all true. It's all true. It's way worse than you even know. That's the point of the gospel. That's the point of the gospel. He made him who knew no sin so that we would become the righteousness of God, that Christ would give us his righteousness. That is the point of the gospel. But we forget And we go back to cowering. And that's why we steep ourselves in the reality of the gospel every week. Hebrews speaks into this and gives us a profound picture of our relationship with Jesus Christ. It says, For he who sanctifies, which is Christ, and those who are sanctified, which is us, all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers, in the midst of the congregation, and I will sing your praise. Jesus Christ has made you completely holy. He has sanctified you completely right now. Now the rest of our lives will be him working that out actually in our lives, which is painful and scary, but we're secure because right now Christ has sanctified you, and so he is not ashamed to say, you are my brothers and you are my sisters. We all have one source. God is our Father. And that's where we stand. Most of us are probably familiar with the 
children's song, Jesus loves me, right? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Well, last month I was up north visiting, and the house I stayed at for a couple days, they had a lyric from this song on the wall, but with two words changed, only two, and it profoundly changed the thrust of the message. Listen to this. It simply said, Jesus knows me. This I love. Jesus knows me. This I love. That little nuance, for me at least, dives so much deeper into my heart than the rote, Jesus loves me, this I know. Jesus knows me. This I love. But to be known and fully known and loved by Jesus is an amazing comfort. It's good to be loved. It's good to be loved. But oh, how much better to be known and still loved. That's where we are because of Jesus Christ. Jesus knows me. This I love. So Jude has given us two reasons that he has now erupted into doxology in light of the truth of his letter. We praise God for his sovereign strength that keeps us, and we praise God because he will present us in perfection. These are things God has done for us. And now as we come to the final verse of the letter of Jude, he praises God for who he is. Number three, we praise the only God who reigns forever. Verse 25, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So this is where Jude leaves us with our eyes fixated on God, the only God, and on the salvation that is found only through Jesus Christ. But this isn't just a formality. Remember Jude's entire point for writing the letter. At the very beginning, he said, I am writing to appeal to you to contend for the faith. He's not saying conjure up philosophical arguments. He's saying look to God and see a picture of who God is and the gospel that he has given us. This is how we contend for the faith. So here's my question that we all have to wrestle with here at the end of the book of Jude. What does it look like for you to contend for the faith in your everyday life? To be sure, there is a place to correct false teaching, but my suspicion is that probably doesn't comprise most of your life. So what does it look like to contend for the faith in your life, at your home? It is correcting false teaching, but I wonder if it is a more expansive meaning than that. What if contending for the faith means being attentive to the larger story and living in light of it in every facet of your life? See, when we do this, we realize that our workplace is not just where we work, but is where God has commissioned us to be a minister of reconciliation in everything. And so maybe contending for the faith for you means showing uncommon kindness in a cutthroat work environment. Surely that's contending for the faith, right? What if contending for the faith is not giving your spouse the silent treatment after that tone that you loathe, but embracing them, pushing that aside and saying, I love you, I'm not going anywhere, and I'm frustrated with you too. That's okay. Is that not contending for the faith? Surely that's contending for the faith. What if contending for the faith is forgiving that family member who fractured your heart and you've let bitterness grow deep? But now that you realize in Christ you have been forgiven much, so you'll offer forgiveness. Surely that's contending 
for the faith. I don't know what it looks like for you. But we're called to contend for the faith. How do you contend for the faith, friends? How do you live in light of the gospel? This is not done by sheer effort. We are not moralists as Christians. We are those who bear the image of God, who have the Holy Spirit residing in us. And part of his work is to bring to the surface these things, to change our hearts that we might live and walk in the way of love. And we be sensitive to these leanings and nuances from the Holy Spirit. This is contending for the faith. We bask our minds in the gospel. Then we simply respond. We live lives of doxology. That's contending for the faith, friends. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your um, kindness to us. How often do we see you as kind, Lord? I confess that I often don't see you as kind. I see you as arms crossed, waiting for me to perform. And Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would fall afresh in this place, that he would illuminate these truths, that you are holding us every second. You delight in us. You will one day in glory present us blameless as your trophies of grace. This is who you are. This is what you have done for us. So, Lord, I pray that for each one of us individually, that your spirit would show us what does it look like to contend for the faith? What does it look like to walk in the way of love? What does it look like to not repay evil with evil, but repay evil with good? What does it mean to love when it's hard? Father, expand our definition of contending for the faith. We love you, Lord. We thank you through Jesus Christ. His name we